As a journalist during the dot-com boom and throughout more than a decade as the editor-in-chief of the MIT Technology Review, Jason Ponton has seen technology of all kinds emerge from its earliest stages to become the world-shifting technology that we use today. After watching that evolution happen for so long, Jason decided he wanted in on the action. Today, he is a senior advisor for Flagship Pioneering, where he is focused on how technology can be used to make a larger impact on the world. On today's episode of IT Visionaries, he talks about some of the projects and companies he's involved with, and he explains why he believes AI and deep learning will be huge forces in shaping the world moving forward. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have on the almost top floor of the Salesforce Tower, Jason, what's going on? Not much, just enjoying Dreamsfuls. Yeah, me too. Uh, it has been a, you know, a crazy week, as it always is here at Dreamforce. I was told that you have more than 100,000 people in town. I mean, I think, yeah, I think it might be like 170. I'm not sure. It's It's... It's an insane takeover for a city that already has about 400,000 people. I think they come in every day to commute. At this point, one has to wonder if it can get much bigger next year. Perhaps bigger, perhaps better. You know, I would say that particularly, and you, well, and you spoke. I'm about to speak uh, tomorrow uh, on the subject of artificial intelligence and machine learning. What an exciting time. We're going to get into that. We're going to get into your role and the awesome work you're doing at Flagship Pioneering. But first, how did you get started in technology? Oh, I'm a journalist by background, at least. And I was here for the first dot-com boom, where I was the founding editor of a magazine called Red Herring, which had been called the Bible of the Boom back in the day. (laughs) And I rode that up from about 30 employees to nearly 500. At one point, we were looking to have a billion-dollar IPO, implausibly, for a media company. And then it all fell apart really quickly. And then I just became a writer for a short period of time. And MIT said, would you like to go and saddle up one more time to run a media company? And I thought, oh, no, no, (laughs) I don't want to do that. But I'll visit MIT. Uh, And I went out there and I fell in love with it. And what was meant to be a two-year stint, running a publication called MIT Technology Review ended up being 13 years. But after 13 years, Tim, I began to feel a real hunger, not just to write about the stuff, but to make a real positive impact in the world by creating it. MIT Technology Review, like truly one of the amazing publications that's out there. It's one of our favorites for sure. It's just a great source. And I'm sure, you know, tons of our listeners we've linked, I think we've linked almost half the episodes IT visionaries to, uh, to some of the work that you all have done. Um, I'm curious, you know, when you were thinking about trends in technology, uh, what was kind of your thought process for running that team and, and looking at those things? That's a great question. 
It is the oldest technology publication in the world, founded in 1899. Is that true? Yeah. Holy moly. Wholly owned by MIT. Its relationship to the Institute is kind of like the relationship of Harvard Business Review to Harvard. It is not the job of Tech Review to promote MIT's technologies or innovations. Instead, Tech Review tries to look at really important trends, emerging technologies that are going to disrupt business, society, politics, and be the first to report on them, but in a way that isn't highly technical. So Tech Review's audience are all, they all have graduate degrees. Um, they're all specialists, but they are various in their specialities. So there are physicians and physicists and computer scientists, and this forced us not to use jargon. So the mission of Tech Review was to make sure that we told the audience about a breakthrough in, say, quantum computing before anyone else did or in gene editing, but to say so in a way that the people who really knew it would say, you know, that's right. They may not actually be, you know, molecular biologists, but that's basically right. <laughs> um, and the people who had never read about the field before would say, oh, now I get it. That's, that's not difficult. Why wasn't it explained that way before? So Tech Review's kind of virtues as an organization are priority, writing about it for the first time, and doing it in a way that's technically accurate, but broadly understandable to a, a technologically literate audience. I love that. And I think because technology is ever-evolving, it's ever-changing, the definitions of things are changing, and new things are being created every day. Do you feel like the pace of innovation and looking and making sense of all of those innovations was something that kind of like changed in the 13 years that you were there? Has the pace of technological innovation increased? It's easy to think so, though in any one period, the PC revolution of the 70s and the early 80s, they, they thought so as well. I'll tell you what did happen during my time there. There were two technologies that seemed to drop out of the sky as if they'd been given to us by aliens mm -hmm. uh, or they'd fallen on us like a, like a meteorite before we were really ready to understand them socially. And, and I think they're going to have a much broader impact over the long term than even the, the internet uh, did. Uh, the first was the, the revolution and machine learning and AI, which seemed to come out of nowhere in 2012 from a real backwater in computer science, a, a field called deep learning or backpropagation after 40 or 50 years of an AI winter. I, I don't think you can underestimate how disruptive uh, these techniques and machine learning are going to be. And the second thing that took me by surprise was that gene editing, which had been a difficult, time-consuming, and expensive technology using techniques like, they have names like talons or zinc fingers, it suddenly became incredibly easy and cheap. Someone with a undergraduate degree in biology in a $10,000 machine could edit individual nucleotides. And that is going to have a extraordinary effect, not just on obvious things like drug discovery, but whole new fields that we can't even begin to imagine. And you don't include blockchain in, in that group. I, so I, my joke about blockchain is that, um, is that, you know, Bitcoin is ridiculous, but blockchain itself is, is sublime. But I, I'm not sure if the, if the technology for digital ledgers is going to be blockchain itself. 
So mm. the idea of having a transparent ledger uh, on a database uh, has enormous benefits. It can be really cool. Uh, it could be used for a whole bunch of things. It doesn't, doesn't even occur to most people at first, uh, a first you know, superficial uh, thought. You can use blockchains to guarantee that uh, pork imported from China mm -hmm. is safe and arrives in a way that is usable and edible and Walmart. You can create futures markets uh, for diamonds where they never existed before because no one knew what the provenance of diamonds were. Uh, and I think it's going to be extremely interesting for currency speculation and a whole bunch of other stuff as well. But blockchain itself has a bunch of technical problems, which uh, make me hesitant to say that that's the final the final technology. And indeed, there are all these kind of uh, schismatic wars going on in blockchain at the moment. The, the standards are splitting. Um, so I would bet all the money in my pocket against all the money in yours that there will be additional ledger, that will be a, uh, a standard for manufacturing and trade within the next 20 years. I just think that blockchain and Bitcoin itself was invented as a kind of goofy demonstration case. Uh, for a bunch of people who had both an ideological and technical uh, row to hoe, and they never expected it to be this. And we may have to start from scratch to rebuild it. The reason why I say that is just because, to me, it felt like it fell out of the sky as well. I never believed uh, uh, that Satoshi was one person. Uh, mm. I don't believe any one person would have that particularly weird combination of crypto punk uh, <laughs> skills on the one hand and uh, some really, really fancy math and should also be so ideologically odd. I think it was a consortium of people, but yeah, they, they clearly pushed that thing out there. Uh, and I bet you they were slightly surprised that it had quite the impact that it did. So you had this amazing opportunity to look at technology in the 13 years at MIT Technology Review and obviously at Red Herring, see the landscape change, see all sorts of companies and creations and technologies. And you said, I want in. What does that look like? What does your role look like at, at Flagship Pioneering? What are you working on? Sure. But before I say why I wanted in, maybe I should, I should volunteer that I feel we're running out of runway on a whole variety of important social problems. I didn't leave journalism just to get rich, though as a you know modern person, I hope some of the investments I work on do, do well. But whether it's climate change or diseases like dementia or cancer, uh, water filtration, uh, sustainable, clean agriculture, we're going to be at at nearly seven, nine, 10 billion people by the middle of the century on a planet roiled by climate change and where we've plucked all the low hanging fruit for the diseases that are essentially acute accidents. Uh, there will be an America of people who have dementia by the middle of the century, and we don't even know what the disease is. Uh, we will have to feed another 2 billion people and provide the Chinese with another 500 calories a day. We have enormous needs for water. And I just began to feel after a certain point that writing about this stuff, with the talents I do have and the time that, that was left to us, I, I felt I could make more of, a, more of a contribution. 
So to directly answer your question, I began interviewing at venture capital firms, uh, mainly on the West Coast, because despite the accent, I'm, I'm from the Bay Area. And I got pretty far with most of them. And then I gave a speech at the late Paul Allen's philanthropic retreat. And a guy called Nubar Afayan, who is the founder of Flagship, came and said, what, what are you doing these days? This is great. He's, he's Armenian. And I said, oh, I'm looking for work at a conventional venture care. He said, don't, don't work for a VC. You're, <laughs> you're hated. Come and work for us. So I joined Flagship, which is a very unusual type of innovation firm. We call ourselves a unique life sciences innovation enterprise, which is a mouthful, but is meant <laughs> to distinguish us from what VCs normally do. So VCs live and die by deal flow essentially. They see, you know, 20, 30 deals a week. Uh, they do a bit of pattern recognition. They give a bit of money. They dilute the founders. And if they're any good, maybe they help grow the company. It's not how we work at Flagship at all. All the science, 100% of the science is generated internally by people like me. Every year, we come up with 100, in Nubar's phrase, unprecedented ideas an idea that no one knows how to do at the moment. Of the hundred ideas we think are interesting, we call them originations, a certain number would have such tremendous social value and economic value. We then ask the next question, which is, could you design a research program around this idea? And if you can, if it's an unprecedented idea that no one's done before, if it has enormous value, uh, and you can come up with a research program, we throw it into the lab with no money at all and no name at this point for a couple of years just to validate the science. If you can validate the science, then we begin to shower capital on these projects because they are incredibly uh, expensive to go and do. And eventually you begin to take on outside investors and there is a traditional IPO. Some of the areas we've worked in might be familiar to your audience. Uh, we created a company called Moderna, which had the largest IPO in biotech history uh, in December, a $6 billion IPO. Moderna uh, hijacks your messenger RNA, the molecules in your body that instruct your DNA to go and create proteins. And by hijacking mRNA, we make your own body make drugs. So whatever uh, proteins you're not producing or you're producing too much of, we can fix that and in a way that it has much less toxicity and actually gets to where it's meant to work. We also create agricultural companies like Indigo and Inari that are doing crazy stuff. Indigo manipulates the microbiome, the bacteria outside seeds, in order to increase yield sometimes by 75% while reducing pesticides and insecticides and herbicides to almost nothing. So from a farmer's point of view, they uh, have much more profitable fields and they can do so much more sustainably. And all of these companies usually have a kind of social impact element to them. So for instance, Indigo has created a market where if farmers buy our seeds and fix carbon from the air, in order to reduce the atmospheric carbon that's creating global warming, we pay them. We give them money back uh, just to go and be more socially responsible farmers. So Flagship is a, an extraordinary place. It's created around $30 billion 
in aggregate value uh, over 17 years. And it is as unlike a conventional Silicon Valley venture capital firm as you could imagine. And so what what's the scope of your work in the company? Are you working with every company? Are you working with trying to get the ideas into the lab, after the lab, a bit of both? I do a bit of everything there. Um, my background as a journalist is helpful uh, to the companies as they begin to explain what their core value proposition in the jargon is. But I absolutely work on company creation as well. And I work when the companies unveil themselves and launch themselves. I help with capital raising sometime as well. At the moment, and we can get into this, I'm very much focused on a number of companies using artificial intelligence and machine learning to do to do some novel stuff in the world. Yeah, let's let's get into that. You know, based off the fact that it's your uh, you know number one fall out of the sky technology that's that's going to change the world here. You know, kind of broad strokes, AI and machine learning. You said 2012 yeah. is when you feel like everything changed. Yeah. Um, so from then to now, what does the landscape look like? The techniques that took off in 2012 weren't especially new. Uh, they used a technique that dated back to the 1980s called deep learning, uh, which itself was based upon an early idea called neural nets that had been first proposed in the 40s. But deep learning was a kind of backwater in artificial intelligence. It was mainly associated with a guy, a single guy, uh, up in Toronto called Jeff Hinton. And if you would ask almost everyone in 2011, uh, would we make real progress in AI through this technique, they'd say, no, we mathematically proved it couldn't be done. Uh, there was a guy at MIT, uh, Marvin Minsky, and another guy called Seymour, Seymour Papert, and they said that mathematically, you could never really scale these deep learning techniques. And at the big AI conference, NIPS, in 2012, uh, Hinton and his team presented a paper where they had a, you know, a, a function change in machine learning, uh, where they showed that it could do extraordinary magical things. And what really changed, besides a few refinements in the, uh, in the algorithms, in the words of Andrew Ng, the creator of Google Mind, were we got bigger rockets, by which he meant we got GPUs, uh, that were uh, able to do more compute, and we got more fuel, by which he meant a lot more data. And since then, almost all the progress uh, has been in fiddling a little bit uh, with those algorithms and putting much more data uh, into these systems so that uh, deep learning systems are now sometimes hundreds or thousands of levels deep and can do remarkable things. Uh, Sundar Pichai at, uh, at Google says that it is an innovation like electricity or fire. Having said that, it's doing one particular thing. Uh, it's doing a form of pattern recognition. Uh, it's doing a form of classification. And most of the interesting problems in life actually aren't classification problems. And the other problem with these current techniques is that they are pretty much limited to data sets called training data that have been manually tagged by human beings. Mm -hmm. 
And this isn't usually understood. So in order to go and make sure that the inputs coming into a deep learning system are reliably producing uh, predictable outputs, the training data is humanly tagged. So these are not um, self-learning systems at all. If you're teaching a artificial intelligence system to translate Mandarin to English and English to Mandarin in real time, I swear to God, every single phoneme in Mandarin was manually tagged by a MIT linguist. <laughs> and that's probably not you know, sustainable to go and solve some of the, the big problems. So we're in this interesting place where as long as we can feed these really data-hungry systems, and as long as the problem is basically a classification problem, it's making enormous progress. But I think in 2019, 2020, we're beginning to see, if not a brick wall, we're beginning to see some problems that current techniques are not well suited to solve. Yeah. And so what are some of those things that you're working on and your companies are working on? Yeah. So um, me go up to the highest level of abstraction first. Uh, biology is incredibly complex. Biology is uh, mind-blowingly complex. Uh, at first, we thought that molecular biology wasn't that complex <laughs> because we found these underlying rules of incredible elegance and beauty, the structure of DNA, uh, what's called the, the, the classical dogma. Uh, where DNA instructs RNA, you get protein. I mean, these were beautiful systems. You know, when we began to poke at it in the real world of, say, developing drugs, we found there were exceptions to everything. Because biology is parsimonious, and it's existed for hundreds of millions of years, and it's found these hacks through evolution to solve things. And it became really frustrating about the inability to translate these biological insights into real usable products because biology was simply too complex for human beings to understand. It's not too complex for machines to understand. So almost all the companies I'm working with are using AI to do two things, to uh, generate novel hypotheses that human beings wouldn't be able to generate themselves because of the complexity uh, of biology, so we're, we're essentially abandoning the hope to go and come up with real mechanistic explanations uh, for what biology is doing. And then to create and generate novel molecules, potentially, that will map on uh, to these biological insights that the machines have created. Uh, so we have a company called Celerity uh, that looks at uh, gene expression at the level of the whole cell. No human mind could possibly understand that but machines can. We have another company called um, Cogen Immune Science uh, that is working on understanding the human immune system. Uh, there are other companies that are doing similar things, but in all cases, we are essentially throwing up our hands at trying to understand the millions of genetic interactions that occur every moment in your body. And we're allowing the systems that are really good at pattern recognition to do it for us. And when you have one of those companies that's mm. being incubated, yeah, how do you develop a team around that? How do you develop a company around that type of idea? I was talking to one of my partners the other day, 
and he began to describe someone he wanted to hire. So it was a data scientist who had a PhD in computer science and the most current techniques like generative adversarial networks and had worked on a particular set of biological data. I said, Avak, I'm sorry, how many people are that like that in the world? Went, oh, two, three. And I said, it's going to cost us a, a fortune to hire that person, right? He said, yeah. So team building is actually what we spend almost all our time doing. Uh, in the almost two years I worked with Flagship, I don't think I've ever had a discussion about what conventional VCs talk, VCs talk about, dilution and yeah. pre-money valuations and post-money. We never talk about that. We talk about people. We talk about who can help us hire the team we need to solve the problem we're trying to solve. And we talk about um, we talk a lot about not trying to boil the ocean initially mm-hmm. with all these scientific projects. You're trying to tell a story. This is where my old background as a journalist comes through. So there, Moderna took nearly a billion dollars in funding you know, to go and get to its IPO. So to go and get follow-on investment, you not only have to solve the science, you have to solve the right science at the right time to go and get more, more investors to follow on. Uh, so we spent a lot of our time thinking about, thinking about what will attract brilliant people who could work anywhere to come and work for this company. And particularly with younger folk, it usually isn't the money. I mean, like me, they want to be paid, but it's not mainly the money. There's usually a problem set that they've been unable to solve, either in academia or working for a larger company. Uh, and we essentially do the Steve Jobs uh, sugar water conversation. What we say, like Steve said to John Scully, do you want to sell, do you, do you want to make sugar water for the rest of your life? Or do you actually want to be able to, do you want to go and be able to feed the world? in 2050. Almost every single one of our CEOs or scientific founders has a reason why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, Their childhood nanny died of breast cancer. Their their mother died of a glioblastoma. Um, They come from Ethiopia and have witnessed multiple famines. There's usually a thing that led them to pursue the science they pursue. And the speech normally goes you can work on that problem and maybe solve it before you die. Do you think that these companies, because they're kind of built atypical than traditional, you know, venture back companies, and it seems like the teams are built a little atypical, does it resemble like a normal company structure? I mean, does it have a tiered approach? Does it have, you know, sales and marketing and all these, you know, functions? Well, no, for the first reason, because we, deliberately don't hire almost all the business functions until quite late uh, because they're not necessary yet. And indeed, if you're if you're truly building a, a platform for the future, you're focused on the business in this sense that there are kind of there are outputs that you'll need when you tap the public markets, but you don't need to worry about a ton of the stuff that um, that more conventional, less innovative companies are worried about. You know, they're pretty flat because they're science-driven organizations. Everyone is allowed to talk. Uh, everyone's opinion is valid. Diversity really matters in these orga- organizations, and not just because it's socially just. Um, diversity matters because you want really diverse points of view, and, you, and you'll make mistakes if you don't have them. Um, and I guess the other thing that's unique about these organizations is that there is a, 
you have to be pretty tough skinned during meetings. If you make a non-falsifiable statement, uh, you will be challenged on it. And uh, you need to go and say you have the data to go and defend your, your point of view. Or if you don't have the data, you need to be able to say how you get it. When you're talking about folks that have advanced degrees, uh, advanced specialties, and all of these sort of things, obviously there's large percentage of the worlds that don't have access to those type of things. Now they do with technology and, and the internet and things like that. How do you look at you know, filling those companies like that bubble up with, you know, young talent that doesn't have the means or access to those type of, uh, you know, like educational institutions. This is, this is really relevant for the, your audience and for Salesforce customers uh, in general. I think there are a whole bunch of, of specializations that companies probably shouldn't look to fill themselves which they can rent on the cloud using Salesforce products like Einstein. Mm -hmm. So you do need employees who are bilingual in data science and whatever it is they do. And for us, the, the bilingual kind of expertise can be life sciences and, and data science. But for other organizations, it might be uh, data sciences and design. It could be, you know, any number of things. But to me, one of the the great reliefs of the last couple of years is that for the basic data science, uh, the basic machine learning, you can look to other people to do that for you. You still need to be able to have enough understanding of data science to be creative. Salesforce can't do everything for you. But that period where all the data scientists were owned by a half dozen companies in Silicon Valley, uh, I don't think is, is the case anymore. I think there's cavalry out there who's ready to ride to the rescue. Uh, and uh, for this audience, I'd really urge them to um, not try and reinvent the wheel when there are companies who, who create machine learning platforms for, for a living. Yeah, I mean, we, we talk about this a lot with our guests because, you know, if you're a company that a hospitality company, for example, your access to getting a data science team yeah. and paying for that and paying a premium is going to be extremely expensive. And, and that's just, you know, one section of that. And I think the CIOs and CTOs that are looking like, you know, these buyer build conversations are massive numbers. Yeah. Um, and to be able to build those capacities, like what, how, what would you recommend to those folks on like how to structure you know, looking at going to your leadership team and saying, hey, this is, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to build this capacity. These are kind of option A, option B. Like, what should we do? Well, you can, so in the military, they call these force depletion reports. Sure. Uh, and they, they, um, they usually manipulate uh, the commander in chief by presenting a really terrible force depletion report that would cost a fortune and not really achieve the ends. And then, you know, something cheaper. So I guess for the CIOs in the uh, the audience, I think that can be done legitimately and honestly. So it doesn't mean that you don't have to have a core group of data science pirates uh, inside your organization uh, who can design the right experiments, who can build the right products, and who can work with the right platforms. But you can have a, very, a fairly small entrepreneurial team who is doing that rather than building out the whole uh, functionality 
yourself. Uh, and though I'm a, I'm a huge fan uh, of the Salesforce platform, I think Salesforce, for the first person to say, doesn't pretend to do everything. Uh, and if you mix and match uh, some of the other stuff that's out there, you can have as robust a product set and platform as anyone who's invented it themselves and spent an enormous amount of money. And that means you can actually specialize on doing what only the company can do, which is whatever its core innovation is. Yeah, and and focus on customer experience. I mean, we talk a ton about that. And yeah. ultimately, um, you know, your company is defined by that experience that your customers have. You know, I, I don't, I don't, you know, if you're staying in a hotel for the night, you're not sitting there like wondering what the data science team looks like, you know, or how much they invested in data science. Yeah. But it is also a critical you know, vein that needs to be, you know, explored for the company to be successful going forward. So it, it, it's an economic observation rather than a general rule that um, new technologies always produce new and better jobs. Um, I wish it were a rule, but it's not. Sometimes it takes longer than we'd like. The last industrial revolution, wages and jobs didn't really recover for nearly a century. I think this revolution is going to happen much faster. And though I'm confident that the data revolution will create more and better jobs, I don't know a single job that isn't going to be profoundly altered. But by and large, I think it's going to return us to our, our human relations, uh, the customer focus in your, your language. Think about doctors. So for a century, as biology became more complex and we expected um, doctors to have a bit of molecular biology. We made them to kind of bad scientists, not particularly good ones. Uh, we expected them to uh, be able to do diagnosis uh, and prescription. And they got away from taking care of people. And it's kind of tragic because they weren't particularly good at it. Um, the average patient who is on uh, blood pressure medicine uh, is prescribed blood pressure medicine about four or five times before they get it right. Uh, for uh, psychotropic drugs, for people who have mental disease, it's it's even more. Uh, and in the end, uh, all the doctor has to judge, you know, blood work, some kind of gross morphologies. Uh, and then, you know, the patient's own reported state of self-satisfaction. I'm feeling better. That's right. It's trial and error. Trial and error. Computers can do that much better than human beings can. Um, the biggest company I'm working with at the moment where I'm spending two days a week. I can't name it because the name is going to change almost certainly because it's not <laughs> a protectable name. Uh, but we're trying to do systems integration across healthcare, including that kind of diagnosis and prescription so that we can much better match molecules to patients to have better outcomes. And getting back to my original point, if you can do that, then you know, the actual professional can become customer-focused or patient-focused again and take care, actually take care of why they probably entered the field in the first place, which is to work with human beings. So as these companies grow, these companies need to have their employees empowered. They need to increase their internal productivity. You know, the people working on these amazing discoveries in the research lab, they have a computer that they use. They have, um, you know, all sorts of technological tools. They have communication tools. You know, it's critical to get that right. And a lot of our listeners, you know, build companies that, that help those people do their jobs. 
What do your companies need? What are the things that they're crying out for to increase their own productivity? Uh, so the <laughs> I'm laughing because um, the principal kind of misery in my life uh, and everyone whom I kind of work with is companies like ours. We have terrible meeting culture. Yeah. We have the worst meeting culture uh, imaginable. Uh, we got a little bit better at flagship, but I remember my very first day I went to the partner meeting, began at like eight in the morning and it ran to, ran nearly 12 hours or something. And it's in one of these kind of, uh, these rooms that only companies like ours have with a kind of marble, a beautiful uh, table and these lights overhead that make you feel like a rat yeah. in a rat maze. At the end of it, I turned to one of the partners, I said, is it always like this? And he said, oh, it can be worse sometimes. <laughs> One of the things I'm trying to bring to the companies I work with is better meeting culture. And I don't think we yet have good IT solutions to improve meetings. There have been lots of really innovative products that have tried to create virtual workplaces, GitHub and Slack. And I'm a big fan of Ignite. Uh, but if I can address the CIOs and the audience for you guys need to reach out to your big vendors, you know, like Salesforce and come up with a system that actually reflects how people work and is clear and is, I, I would be, an, I would be the number one uh, buyer of a really flexible IT-based meeting system where I could have um, super focused meetings when I needed them, um, where and I could go and virtualize as much as possible outside the actual physical meeting. Yeah, I mean... We think obviously about future work a lot, you know, here at Mission and, you know, obviously, you know, Salesforce focus, focuses on future work a lot. But one of the things that I find so fascinating is maybe the machines can help with this. It's like people learn different ways. People work different ways. Like the idea that like, you know, the early bird gets the worm sort of a thing that we're just like supposed to like get up and start working. And, you know, you wake mm -hmm. up at six and get to work by eight sort of a thing that that just like is how all of society is supposed to work. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in Spain, you have a siesta, you know, yeah. but here you don't. Like these sort of things, these cultural norms, like I would love to see more analysis on like how people optimize for themselves mm. because I think that like, generally speaking, we just all conform to one thing. Yeah. It's like nine to five, Monday through Friday, and that's how the business world works. And then, you know, other people work other times. I, uh, is this something, I know it's not no, you know, no, deep I, tech here, but. No, it, it is deep tech. It's a really profound thing. I, I A couple of years ago, I was at Ted and Sal Khan, the founder of mm -hmm. Khan Academy, looked out at all the people in the room and said, every single one of you has something in common. All of you are great bullshitters at exams. <laughs> uh, and he was right. Every single person, uh, in the room was good at working in a certain way and taking tests. So every single person he said could do maths and they could miss a class. They could kind of make it up later or fake it in the next one. He said, he said most people aren't like that. I remember I was talking about diversity. Uh, by creating workplaces that promote someone who's done conventionally well at a certain type of test taking and gone to a certain type of university and then has been particularly good uh, at a certain type of nine to five work, we're driving diversity out of the workplace. So there've been two interesting kind of database studies on this recently. Um, Google has started trying really hard recently to go and test coders 
based upon how actually clean and good their code is, rather than on whether or not they have a computer science PhD. And the people who are actually the most productive at code often have completely unconventional work habits and don't have conventional degrees at all. And there's been a fascinating study about who uh, ends up being the best lawyers by um, a whole bunch of um, tests of productivity. It's not the people who do the best on their law exams to go and get into the top 13 law schools. Yeah, one of my uh, one of my mentors when I was in the army told me, he was like, why would the generals of the army change the promotion <laughs> structure? Because if it's wrong, that's how they got promoted there, right? So it's like the folks that, and it's not like an indictment of them. It's just like, well, this is how I got here. So like, clearly something's working, right? So the army's about to change this for the, at least battalion commanders. So battalion commanders, have, um, they've had their, their tickets stamped in a very particular way at every single stage of yeah. their promotion. And it, produce, it tends to go and produce battalion commanders and then later flag officers of a very particular type. Yeah. You know, occasionally someone like Petraeus or MacMaster squeaks through. But even then, they're constantly compensating for being, you know, a an intellectual warrior. Uh, Colin Powell the same way. Yeah, Colin Powell the same way. So I think they're about to go, the army says it's about to go and bring some more um, data-grounded tests, including psychological tests uh, for who gets to be made battalion commander. So you have less of these crazy martinets, uh, you know, ending up commanding a... Uh, a battalion. I think we need to do that outside the military too. I think we are beginning to have some insights into the brain and the diversity of the human brain as well. Uh, and I would love if when we chose CEOs, it wouldn't just be based upon how they performed in the past. If they had stumped their ticket, that could be based upon some more rigorous testing as well. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because the same uh, mentor, he told me, he's like, the whole army is predicated on making battalion commanders and battalion command sergeant majors, right? Because they want you to have three stops at all these different kind of mm -hmm. units and all these different kind of things. So the whole structure is to get someone, the two people in those roles at the expense of everyone else. Everyone else. So you have these really weak teams. I mean, um, I don't need to spend any time around the military uh, sees that the battalion commanders are actually incredible in a in a kind of conventional way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, there's been massive underinvestment in uh, the kinds of you know NCOs that you want. I, I think, and that's and that's where that's where almost all the uh, the real work is done. In the military, you see, uh, the Israeli army is kind of better at this. Um, they think of their senior NCOs as being as important as any investment they. They make, yeah. I, uh, I mean, we could probably do another hour just on uh, on the on the U.S. military. Uh, I, I love the army, but uh, that doesn't mean that you know things can't get better. Okay, before we get out of here, I know you're a busy man. Uh, let's get into some lightning round questions. Sure. These questions, fast and easy, just like the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Go to Salesforce.com/platform to learn more. Fast and easy questions. Jason, are you ready? Sure. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that's the most fun? The most fun app I use, this sounds like the New York Times has a great crossword puzzle app that I, I, 
I love a lot. Least fun app. Uh, if I wasn't professionally bound to be on some of these social networks, I wouldn't use them at all anymore. It's, it's, it's an absolutely toxic atmosphere now. What is the thing that you do for fun? I am so unfun because I am a, I have young kids. So for me, honest to God, fun is hanging out with my, uh, my children. I, I still love to read. I, I, I guess, I mean, the only strength I can bring to my current job is the breadth of my education uh, and the breadth of the insights. I work with other partners and executives who are as overtrained as racehorses. You know, they um, they have done a, not just molecular biology, but a particular type of molecular biology. So if I can say, you know what, I saw something in a quantum computing paper, or I read a novel from the 19th century, which you should, that is enormously fun for me. And it's probably the biggest value I bring to the people I work with is the breadth of my, my access to information. I know this is the lightning round, but one of the things I recently read through, I was like up at, you know, midnight or something. And I read through Semmelweis's entire paper. Yeah. And uh, it was one of those moments where you're like to go back in time and imagine the like courage that he had to be able to like, you know, discover this whole thing. And I think there's so much value in things that have been around a long time because like the human condition is such that like, you know, it's so important to read things that are old. Um, it's just, there's so much knowledge there, but, um, I digress. Anywho, uh, favorite thing to cook or eat. Favorite thing to cook or eat. I like doing chicken in a pot, one of those kind of putting a pot dishes, you know, where you, you cook the chicken for a long time with kind of carrots and wine. And I like making that some Instapot action. Um, what thing are you most excited about for the future of technology? I think a black swan event had occurred earlier this year, and I don't even know what it means yet. So I'm talking about quantum computing. So for as long as I've been around, the joke was quantum computing is the technology of the future and always will be. Yeah. And this year, a paper was published by Google where they achieved what's called quantum supremacy. Quantum supremacy is when a analog quantum computer can perform a calculation using a known algorithm in a couple of seconds that would take more time in the entire universe for a conventional computer to solve, or you know, at least tens of thousands of years. And we did that this year. And we did it in kind of a very specialized way. The calculation just demonstrated that it could be done. But that's really weird. And I think that I think that offers the opportunity for some really disruptive stuff to happen. Not probably where your audience is thinking. So in any one era, the, we, we, we liken complexity to the most complicated machine on the planet. So um, uh, Newton thought the universe was like a watch. And he said God was the blind watchmaker <laughs> because the watch was the most complicated thing he knew. And when we began thinking about quantum computing, we called them computers because the most complicated things we have on the planet at the moment are these large data centers and supercomputers. I don't think that's what quantum computing is for at all. I think these are machines that can simulate, analyze, and manipulate the subatomic world. So this insight goes right back to the very first proposition of a quantum computer by the Nobel laureate Richard Feynman, where he said, the universe itself, reality said is quantum mechanical. 
and we're going to need a quantum mechanical system to understand it. We are there now, or we will be next year. I was at a presentation at Rigetti Computing a few months ago, and they showed me a slide of the molecules they can model now. They're pretty complex. And in a few years, they'll be able to model what are called macromolecules, proteins. If you can do that, you can create quantum drugs. You can create new batteries uh, that could make advanced renewables a reality. You could, re you could do really profound things. You could solve the water problem. So I, the thing I am most excited about and where I may be turning all my attention, not to make news, is to think about could we create a investment vehicle that could have a venture labs function that would create businesses you could never do except through quantum informational systems? And could you also use these quantum systems to rescue undervalued projects that failed not because they had bad IP, because they ran out of time and money? So as I, remember I said earlier, they were running out of runway. So the thing I'm most excited about is is adjusting to that diminishing runway by attaching to the back of my plane this super-powered rocket and lots of super-powered rockets uh, that will allow us to solve some of these big social problems that I don't think we're going to solve by the middle of the century unless we have a profoundly different, different approach. So that's what I'm most excited about at the moment, is thinking, um, is there a completely different way to approach the really, really hard problems. Chasing the rescuer. I like it. Um, final question. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? I don't think I get asked enough. I don't think anyone in technology gets asked enough why we're doing it in the, in the first damn place. Why are you doing it? Well, as I said, I, I think we face extraordinary problems, you know, and um, I think people who have Talents should use them, you know, for for the greater good. We spend all our time in technology talking on money or using jargon like disruption. Mm -hmm. you know, we even talk about building companies. And I think we get away from I think we get away from why we're doing it in the first place. So I never get asked that question normally. But when I'm hiring people, that's the question I always ask. Because otherwise they're gonna get burnt out. You work on these projects, you're working 12, 14 hours a day. If you have a family, it's incredibly tough. You stop doing tons of stuff that you really care about. Your life boils down to the problems that you're working about and your obligations to your family. And that is absolutely unsustainable if you don't have a mission-driven sense of, of gravity inside you. I think people would be happier in their work if more bosses asked that question. Why do you want to come to work in the first place? I love it. Couldn't agree more. Fire me up, man. I, I love it. Um, thanks so much for hanging out. Thanks for chatting. We got to have you back. We'll talk more quantum because uh, I'm super excited to see what, uh, what, what comes next for you all. Are we ready to talk about it in the new year? Take care. Thanks a lot. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.